Hi listeners, it's Masha Mokutonina, a producer on Masters of Scale. I spend a large part of my day carefully crafting emails, composing documents and endlessly responding to messages. Which is why I am such a big fan of Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner I use on a daily basis. Whether it's reaching out to high-profile guests or coordinating logistics with the production team, I use Grammarly to adjust my writing to different audiences while maintaining the brand voice of Masters of Scale. Grammarly helps spot redundancies and clean up sentences that are unnecessarily wordy, verbose, long-winded and repetitive. Like this one. Grammarly's AI prompts help guide my writing process, personalizing content based on context as well as making tone adjustments intuitively. It doesn't just help me generate more content, it helps me generate better content. Amazingly, Grammarly works seamlessly across my email, Slack, and over 500,000 apps and websites, so there is no cutting, pasting, or context switching needed. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. We want to emerge stronger through this period of adversity than even going into it. We have a responsibility to innovate and serve our consumers and keep that strong connection with them, head and heart. We feel a responsibility to be very engaged in the issues around racial and social justice. So we've committed $140 million to promoting racial and social justice all across the world. We've committed $1.75 million in seven different cities. We're partnering with some very exciting organizations like Black Girl Ventures. We feel an enormous sense of responsibility both to live out our purpose of providing hope and inspiration and connection to consumers all over the world. During periods of adversity, the why question comes up. Why am I doing this? This is really hard. Why should I care? And that's where purpose matters. And I think purpose matters more today than any point I've seen in my career. That's John Donahoe, CEO of Nike. John took over at the storied company in early 2020, just before the pandemic upended everything. He quickly found himself shifting his approach to the job. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to John because he has a decisive perspective on the leadership stance required right now, that top-down stewardship matters more than ever. That doesn't mean John isn't leaning into the brand's legacy and his team's strengths. On the contrary, John stresses how much more he's come to appreciate the passion around Nike for consumers and employees. But pointing the way forward, he says, is also more important than ever. Being realistic about the changes underway includes emphasizing that the old normal will never return. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I wrote down on a piece of paper. What are the strengths that we have and what are the clear glaring opportunities that we're missing? That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. 
Like many leaders, she spent her first months in her new position asking those big-picture questions. Aparna had always been a data junkie, so that's where her interest went. The key thing on opportunities that kept glaring at me was in a world where marketing has moved so much closer to using big data and leveraging machine learning, we were far away from there. How do we scale our marketing engine from where it is today? She came up with a plan to refocus and called a town hall, but the response was not what she expected. We'll find out why later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, focus on your team and your customers. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with John Donahoe, CEO of Nike. John is coming to us from Nike headquarters outside of Portland, as I ask my questions from my home in Brooklyn, New York. John, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Bob. Good to see you after so many years. Yeah, so the last time we saw each other, you were CEO of a different enterprise. I think we first met when you were CEO at eBay. You've been CEO at ServiceNow. You were on the board at Nike for a while. And then last year, you moved from the board to joining the company. How did that decision and that change come about? Well, Bob, it was actually the last thing in my mind as I was a board member and enjoyed supporting Mark Parker, Nike's fabulous CEO, and helping serve Phil Knight and the rest of the board. And one day, Mark came to me and Phil soon thereafter and said, would you ever consider becoming CEO and being my successor? It caused me to reflect a little bit. And I'm at the stage of life where most of my decisions come from a place of purpose. And as I thought about where I was in my life and where things are in the society in this day and age, the world is more polarized than any time in my adult life. As I reflected on it, sport is one of the few things that still brings people together. Sports brings people together across nations. No matter how much you may hate your rival or your opponent, you play with a civil set of rules. And at the end of the game, you shake hands and congratulate your opponent. I feel like the world needs sport today more than any time in history. And Nike's at the very epicenter of sport. Once I locked into that kind of sense of purpose, then obviously it was a huge honor to have Mark and Phil and the board ask me to come into this role. And it was an actually a relatively easy decision. Now, I'm sure when you started this job, having been a CEO before and having been on the board, you had a pretty good sense of the job you were moving into and how you were going to make good on that mission, that purpose. And then, of course, 2020 disrupts everybody's plans. <laughs> so when did you realize this was going to be different and how did your plans shift as the year unfolded? Well, you know, it's interesting, Bob, because I, I was in this very room about a month before I started, Mark and I did an all-hands webcast. And I said, I have one and only one priority in my first 100 days, is I want to do a lot of listening and a lot of learning. I started off consistent with that initial plan. I spent my first week in China, because the best way to learn about a company is through the eyes of the consumer. And so I was in China and Japan. I was out a lot in the market, getting to know Nike's brand, getting to know Nike's people. And then about Oh, I'd say 45 days in, I was in an operating review. Our fabulous leader of China, Angela Dong, talked about 
China, which at that point was in lockdown with COVID and how people are now working from their homes, how our China team was adjusting and what it was like in China. And at that point, I think the conventional wisdom was this was an issue in China, but not everywhere else. Hmm. But then our head of Europe got up and began to talk about, we're seeing some early signs. Our head of North America got up seeing early signs. Our head of the rest of Asia, Pacific, and Latin America, it became clear this was not going to be an isolated incident. This was something that was going to impact us globally. At the end of that day, I said, you know, I think we need to shift our mindset and we need to go from what is a peacetime mentality to a wartime mentality. In a peacetime world, what leadership's about is you try lots of different things, you experiment, you try to make as many decisions as close to the customer out in the field as possible. And you kind of let a thousand flowers bloom and see what grows best. Wartime's different because wartime is characterized by enormous uncertainty. And so what leadership in wartime means is you've got to be clear about what your plan is. You've got to be clear about how you're going to deal with the uncertainty. You have to have contingency plans and scenarios because you can't predict the future. You have to over-communicate. It is by its very nature a more top-down leadership style that's necessary. And so literally in that room that day, and it was the 40 top leaders at Nike, we said, you know what? We need to assume the worst or plan for the worst and prepare for it and then embrace our future together as a team. And I, I will tell you, I was so proud in that next month about how that team responded. China was kind of the playbook. And then we just rolled that playbook out in the US, Europe, and through the rest of the world. And we're still using that today. In China, they're back in the office. In China, all of retail's open. In fact, retail traffic and retail sales are up in addition to e-commerce. Over the last year, we've just been trying to stay consistent with their values, but just embrace the reality and uncertainty that we face. And so is China been like the model all the way through, or is it very more globally than that? It's worked out to be a pretty good analogy. You know, immediately the Chinese government closed down retail. We have over 6,000 retail stores in China. People had to work from home. One of our core purposes is make sport a daily habit. And over the last couple of years, we've been talking about how the definition of sport is expanding from more classic traditional sports like basketball and global football and you name it, tennis, golf, so many sports to yoga, fitness, wellness. But what happened when China shut down is people started practicing sport in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, in their dining rooms. And all of a sudden, that broader definition of sport was being illustrated through our very eyes, right? People were using pieces of fruit as weights. People were doing push-ups with their kids on their back. One of my favorites was seeing a grandfather, an elderly grandfather, standing at his kitchen sink, pouring dish soap on the kitchen floor, and then making it act like a treadmill. His shoes were sliding on the soap. We began to see that people were bringing sport into their lives while confined to their homes. And that started happening in China. And by the way, that has played its way out all around the world. And this idea of the kind of recovery that we're going to have, people talk about this V-shaped recovery. Is that what you've seen in China? And it gives you some impression about how the recovery is going to unfold once health isn't in the way of us going back to normal, going back to what we used to do? Well, I think there's a definition of a new normal. Here's what's not going to change, which is consumer behavior. Consumers now start their shopping experiences on their mobile device. 
sometimes it's an e-commerce transaction that they buy it and it gets shipped home to them. Sometimes they reserve it online and pick it up in store after they try it on. Sometimes they're in a store and they say, you know what, just ship this to me home. I don't want to carry it home. So the seamless consumer experience that's digitally grounded, I think that's here to stay, even when physical retail opens back up. And that's what we're seeing in China. And that's what we've seen elsewhere. And that's why we're accelerating what we call our consumer direct offense. What I think is happening in China that will happen in other places in the world is as our teams came back together into the office, that human connection becomes really, really important. And certainly it's essential if you're an innovative company like Nike. Nike's foundation is innovation. And to innovate, you need to engage with each other. The role of serendipity and human interaction around innovation and idea creation and the execution of that is very hard to do via Zoom. Our teams have done a great job over the last year using Zoom to maintain our momentum. But what we saw in China was just that our teammates, we call them our athletes, that's what we call our employees, our athletes, are engaging with one another and the momentum and creativity and engagement's as high as it's ever been. You have a very deep background in digital commerce. As you say, e-commerce has become dramatically accelerated. How prepared was Nike for this shift? And what adjustments has it led to in the business? Well, Bob, the great news is through the very hard work of all the teams over the past several years, Nike was well-positioned coming in. Our digital assets, Nike.com, our Nike mobile app, our sneakers mobile app. For sneakerheads out there, every sneakerhead will know what the sneakers app is. The volume just went through the roof. Our digital growth rate was 80% throughout the last year. Just phenomenal in the kind of volumes that that implies, the growth and that engagement with consumers. Similarly, the Nike Training Club and the Nike Run Club, which are activity apps, the number of new users and members and engagement with those activity apps just skyrocketed. So we were well positioned to respond to the consumer. But what happens behind the scenes that the consumer doesn't see, there was phenomenal change going on. Our supply chain team taking a supply chain that was in essence geared to get product from factories all over the world into retail, physical retail environments, often shipping in a full container. That's what the core system was set up to do. And yet now it was completely a direct-to-consumer transaction. And we needed to get our product to consumers in two, three, four days. And so the way they were able to, on a dime, change and get that product to consumers in a direct way with service levels that were very, very impressive. We had some unsung heroes in our distribution channel and our supply channel, and then our store athletes. We have roughly 50,000, we call them store athletes, people that work in our retail stores all over the world. And at the beginning of COVID, when retail was closed, we guaranteed their pay. We had pay continuity for over three months because we knew they were a strategic asset for our company. And then as retail began to open back up, Again, these are people that had to come to work. We looked out for their safety and the safety of our consumers, and they helped bring Nike to life on the front lines with consumers day in and day out through our retail environment all over the world. And in an environment where sometimes retail open and then closed, open and then closed, they have shown amazing flexibility and amazing resiliency. You know, I think we had some fundamental strengths and momentum coming in. One of the things that I've learned through my career, it's actually periods of adversity are periods where the strongest companies and the strongest brands can get stronger. 
So we've said we're going to operate with the long term in mind. And our goal is to emerge stronger coming out of this period of adversity than when we go in. Yeah. How is your strategy different than it was a year ago because of things you learned during this time? Well, it's interesting. And I feel incredibly fortunate because Nike's strategy a year ago was called consumer direct offense, CDO. And the thesis was that e-commerce or digital was becoming a larger and larger share of Nike's business because consumer behavior was changing. And so I think it was in 2017 or 2018, we estimated that by 2023, 30% of our business was going to be digital. And that seemed like a bold, big goal back then or prediction or forecast. And it wasn't Nike driving it. Consumer behavior was driving that. Well, what happened is we hit 30% last year. And so we now think that over half our business will be digital within a reasonable period of time. I'm no dummy. What was working was working. So instead of calling it consumer direct offense, we now call it consumer direct acceleration because we now think that what would have taken five years in change of consumer behavior will now happen in two or three. And therefore, what would have taken us five years to do to respond to that change in consumer behavior, we now need to do in two or three years. And so there's just a, a renewed sense of urgency in every element of how we operate. We have evolved our orientation to where we were primarily engaging with consumers, we call it by category or by sport. And what we're finding is that actually consumers say, well, actually, I play basketball and I run and I do yoga. And I want you to know that those are all part of me. And so we've evolved our organization to be more oriented around the holistic view of the customer. We then are providing that end-to-end -end digital experience. And when I say digital experience, there's physical components of that digital experience, right? We say consumers want to get what they want, when they want, how they want it. So we've reoriented digital experiences, our direct retail experiences, and wholesale partners around the world. And then the heart and soul of Nike remains the same, which is product innovation and in the storytelling that goes with it. And throughout this entire virus, entire COVID year, we have continued to launch new product almost on an every two-week basis. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. At my town hall with my team, I was able to sort of declare this new vision for us to become this modern marketing engine. I had a lot of skeptics who were like, we've seen this, done this, it's not going to work. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She's recalling a town hall where she put forth her data-driven vision for overhauling her team's marketing strategy. Moving from output-focused marketing to outcome-focused marketing. When you are outcome-focused, you're actually using the data to evaluate whether your strategies are effective or not, versus output-focused is how many campaigns did I run and how many emails did I send, and so on and so forth. But not everyone was on board. Aparna realized that her presentation was premature. You're not ready to actually declare the vision because people didn't buy into your strategy. First of all, you just have to get comfortable with the fact that people have a right to their own point of view. Second is understanding that there is a story behind the skepticism. And until and unless I understand that story, I will not be able to turn things around. So Aparna turned to her team for answers, something she neglected to factor into her initial plan. She listened and learned. 
pay extra attention to what they are saying and ask a lot of questions. I hear where you're coming from. Any ideas on how we could do this differently? They will rightly slow you down and you'll be grateful that they slowed you down. And it's a good thing they did because a very important piece was missing from Aparna's new marketing strategy. We'll find out what that was later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Your brand and your business is built around the ubiquity of sport, this idea that if you have a body, you're an athlete. But you're quite prominent in the pro sports environment, which has had its own convulsions and adjustments during this period. Did you get involved with any of that, with leagues, with athletes, with universities, the Olympics? All of that impacts your business and your brand in different ways. Well, obviously, our teams interact on a very regular basis with elite athletes and professional teams and leagues and organizations. So yes, and we're very prominent at the Olympics. We're very prominent almost anywhere sport happens. Nike's there. I remember conversations with Adam Silver as the NBA, Adam and his team were thinking around the bubble, how to make the bubble work, how to make a safe season happen with COVID. And we talked about how can we support that? How can we work together? So I give enormous credit to literally the leagues, the athletes who've had courage to embrace it and deal with the start-stop nature at times. We serve everyday athletes, as you described, but we also serve elite athletes. They're our heroes. They're the people that inspire us. The Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka tennis match at the Australian Open two nights ago was just, you know, that's why we exist to see two incredible athletes out there competing at the highest levels in a way that inspires millions and millions of people around the world. So yeah, we work closely with them and that's a large part of what gets us out of bed every morning. I wanna ask about leadership challenges in this moment. CEOs have been put in new positions over the past year, pressed to take positions on social issues and political issues even. What do you think the role of a CEO should be in matters that are beyond dollars and operating your enterprise? Well, I think there's no doubt that in today's world, companies are playing a growing role in society, far beyond just our products and services, as employers, as contributors to the community. What we've tried to do is be really clear about what are the issues that are core to our purpose. And we're comfortable speaking out on those issues and then other issues we may care about, but they aren't core to our purpose. So for instance, in our case, there's three pillars of our purpose, equity and equality, racial justice, social justice. Nike has a long history of engaging on this topic. Our elite athletes care about it. Our consumers care about it. Our employees care about it. So whether it was the Colin Kaepernick campaign from a few years ago, whether it was last year we did Just Don't Do It. We're quite comfortable speaking out on those issues because we believe in them deeply and they're core to our purpose. Sustainability is another theme in our purpose, right? We believe, we absolutely believe that we have a responsibility to be the most sustainable footwear and apparel maker in the world and to invest heavily in innovation around that. We're willing to set bold goals and we're willing to hold ourselves accountable. 
Last year, we released the Space Hippie, which was the most sustainable shoe we'd ever done. Almost 100% reprocessed materials. When the Olympics do happen, and I'm hoping they're going to happen this summer, you will see some incredibly sustainable apparel that leading athletes will be wearing on the medal stands and in competition. And then lastly, youth sport. This is make sport a daily habit. Just the importance of movement and activity, particularly with youth. In this day and age, as you know, youth are becoming less and less active. And we just think it's so important at early ages. And so we have a deep and heavy and sustained investment in cultivating youth sport, whether it is refurbishing playgrounds and courts and playing fields. And by the way, we're concerned about youth sport coming out of COVID because it's been dormant and now it needs to be reactivated back up. I'll never forget being in an all hands with our China team. And almost half the all hands was around what Nike's doing to promote youth sport in China. There was a wonderful video about in a rural village in China, Nike has partnered with a woman that was the gym teacher, the PE teacher. She was the only teacher in the school, but it was so important to help her be able to give the kids a chance to be outside. And the only resources they had were used tires. And Nike helped facilitate the use of those used tires to give those kids in this rural village an hour of movement, sport, every day. Those are the topics and themes that we're willing to help. We view it as our responsibility to help take the lead on and be engaged and be in the dialogue externally. Then there are a lot of other topics that we may care about, but they aren't ones that are core to our purpose. And so we stay focused on what is core to our purpose. I mean, yeah, Portland, where your offices are, has seen more than its share of social and political unrest and wildfires and weather challenges. Has that injected any complications or issues for you personally as a leader? I think, Bob, for those of us that live in the Portland area, it just makes it very real. And it just highlights the importance of dialogue. Certainly inside of our company, while we're a leader on racial and social justice issues externally, internally, we realized we have a lot of work to do to continue to promote really active dialogue among our teammates, because we want to be the most diverse and inclusive team in the world. And we aren't there today. So a lot of last year was, how do we promote that kind of mutual understanding, that listening ability, that empathy, that sense of what it takes to build a really strong team where each member of that team can bring their very best self, their very best authentic self to work. We want to be a high-performance team. And high-performance teams hold themselves to very high standards, and they work really hard at it. And they celebrate differences and diversity and make that be a source of strength. That's what we're committed to doing all across Nike. And we still got work to do, and I'm not afraid to say that. You know, I've always sensed that along with being a high-performance, demanding place, Nike's a fun place to work. I can imagine that that might have been a little harder to keep that spirit in the environment of this year. Was that harder? Was it a hard year? Early on, one of the things that I think we've done and we've continued to do is try to bring a sense of hope and inspiration to people all over the world. If you look at almost all of our storytelling and amazing brand work we've done over the past year, you can't stop sport, never too far down. The most viewed YouTube ad of last year. 
just one after another, a way of trying to give a sense of hope and inspiration. Inside for our team, people have really come together in amazing ways. We've done a nice job of trying to support each other, but fatigue is real everywhere. Obviously, it's been a year of enormous racial and social issues. We have political, presidential election, a very consequential presidential election in the United States. We had fires in California and Oregon last fall. This last weekend, we had the largest ice storm in, in Oregon history, but also all across the country. People are grappling with weather. I think we're going to look back on this year as a year that's called all of us to have a sense of resilience, have a sense of you have to have hope. Yeah, it's been challenging. The only thing harder than going through this would be going through this alone. So I personally feel deeply grateful to be part of Nike and to be going through this period as part of this great team and this great organization. And I think most people at Nike feel the same way. What's at stake in this moment for Nike? I think here's the responsibility we feel. We want to emerge stronger through this period of diversity than even going into it. And sort of what's that mean? Well, we have a responsibility to innovate and serve our consumers and keep that strong connection with them. Frankly, we feel a strong sense of responsibility to provide a a source of hope and inspiration to people through the power of sport, through our storytelling and our brand work, and have that have an element of both head and heart. We feel a responsibility to lead on the issues you and I just talked about a few minutes ago, to be very engaged in the issues around racial and social justice. So we've committed $140 million to promoting racial and social justice all across the world, across our three brands, Nike, Jordan, and Converse. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've committed $1.75 million in seven different cities. We're partnering with some very exciting organizations like Black Girl Ventures that promotes economic empowerment and opportunity. On issues of racial and social justice, we want to lead and be engaged, and that's going to be a multi-year commitment. Sustainability, we feel a huge responsibility of making sure that we are innovating and making dramatic progress. And then youth sport is going to be very, very important. We feel an enormous sense of responsibility both to grow our business but also to live out our purpose of providing hope and inspiration and connection to consumers all over the world. During periods of adversity, the why question comes up. It's why am I doing this? This is really hard. Why should I care? And that's where purpose matters. I think purpose matters more today than any point I've seen in my career. You were very close to the small business market at eBay. And a lot of smaller retail enterprises have struggled over the past year, local shops, while bigger players have been able to weather the storm. Is that good or bad? How do we deal with that split in some ways in the marketplace? Unequivocally, small business is an incredibly important part of our society. I think that's true in the United States. I actually think it's true in many, if not most, markets around the world. Small business is the largest job creator. Small business is some of the most important wealth creators. Small business allows creative entrepreneurial people to thrive regardless of their educational background. And it's been brutal. If you're a restaurant owner or small business on main streets all across the world, frankly, it's been very, very challenging. 
So I think we have a huge responsibility that as society opens back up to ensure that we're paying attention to small business. It's not small versus large. There are certain areas and functions, larger entities can be successful, but our society can't be healthy if we don't have a vibrant small business opportunity and environment. Now, for us at Nike, we have a neighborhood initiative where some of our most loyal and most excited consumers are in urban cities around the world. And that's where retail's really been hit. So we are partnering with entrepreneurs to help them grow retail, physical retail in these neighborhoods. So while, yes, a lot of retail is consolidating, we also want to be ensure that we're investing, whether it's investing digitally through a sneakers app or investing physically through these neighborhood initiatives of helping to promote small business, particularly in urban markets all over the world. You know, as we talk about all this, it's so tricky with so many different things moving around. And I'm mindful of the analogy you made, the story you told right at the beginning about moving from a sort of peacetime managing an approach to a wartime strategy. At what point do you know that it's time that you can move back to peacetime where, you know, where you can start to let a thousand flowers bloom again and it doesn't all have to come from the top. How do you know when you're nearing those places, that next inflection point? Well, that's a great question. I think it always takes longer than you guess and longer than you estimate. And so I think we will be in a period of very high and fundamental change in many ways, as you keep looking forward and understand, don't assume it's going to go back to the way it was. That's death, because then you're always comparing it to the way it was. Say, you know what? We're in a period of rapid change, some change that feels exciting and some change that feels very challenging. I think we're going to be shaping that new normal for not just months to come, years to come. And at what point does it get to be enough positive momentum and the quote unquote peacetime circumstances come? I don't know. I think you got to assume it's like a playoff run, right? A sports team in a playoff run. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till you've won the championship. Well, John, thank you so much for making the time for us. I really appreciate it. Bob, thank you. It's been great to connect. And now a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. What was very clear was that the customer was missing. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She had learned that she couldn't refocus her department's strategy without bringing her team along. And that meant listening when they told her what was missing, the customer. Aparna realized that putting the customer front and center would actually unify her team. I had folks who are traditional marketers and customer is the top thing on their mind. And then I have analysts who spend their time on data. And it's very easy to get stuck into that domain. I have a real opportunity to get both sides to see each other's perspective and meet in the middle. Because Aparna's team couldn't pivot without bringing the customers along. We call ourselves Team Magnet. Our job is to attract and retain customers. So it just creates a sense of working together. Aparna's revised vision statement calls Team Magnet a customer-centric, data-powered machine. The vision statement that I have right now is a hundred times better version of what I had at the beginning of the year. And it has evolved and improved as a result of these conversations we've continued to have within the walls of our team. 
Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large, and Masters of Scale host, Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producer is Jordan McLeod. Scripts by Christina Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson and Lena Sillison. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Adam Heiner, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.